Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Harris Sherman. He is a partner and head of production with Wildcatter Media. He is also a media producer and has experience working with companies like Awesomeness TV, All Deaf Media, and BuzzFeed. On the show, we talk about Hollywood and media. Thank you for listening. Solidarity forever. also a media executive and he's got a master's in fine arts welcome to the podcast mc thank you for having me so let's talk about your background a little bit hollywood insider producer media executive um and you've also got an undergraduate degree where you studied um film and media so you were always planning on uh, this kind of career route for from a pretty young age or is this how you expected things to go tell me about your career and tell me, yeah. tell me about the directions you've taken in your career you got a long you got a long resume you've been involved in lots of different product projects and worked with a lot of uh influential people it sounds like yeah so um i've always been a huge film and cinema person um was always the kid making video projects to get out of a book report or something and uh I actually originally went to college for computer science, but after my first computer science class, I immediately uh, changed my major to film and television. Um, and I did a focus of media studies, which is uh, really more about the effects of film and television on society um, and how it's used, it, it, you know, as far as media in general. And then um, I got into the American Film Institute after that. Uh, that is like much more of a conservatory, you know, 126 uh, person class, two year intensive, no exams, all the actual work of making movies. Did that for two years. Um, uh, I left that uh, with uh, a scholarship from Jeffrey Katzenberg and went to work at a company called Awesomeness TV that was run by uh, a guy named Brian Robbins. He's currently the CEO of Paramount. Uh, I left that to go work for uh, Russell Simmons and help build a company called All Deaf Media. Uh, we did a bunch of digital content as well as television shows for companies like MTV, Fuse, uh, sorry, MTV, Fuse, and HBO. And um, after that, I went and worked at BuzzFeed, worked at another digital media company, I worked for the Impractical Jokers and uh, during COVID decided to partner with two other gentlemen to create the company Wildcatter Media, which is where I've been working and building for the last three years. 
So um, let's get to, so I was looking at your resume here. Um, a lot of freelance stuff. So why don't we talk about like Hollywood Inc.? Um, Let's get let's go behind the curtain. Let's go behind the scenes. Um, I'm very familiar with the gig economy, where you know you're basically when you're on the clock, or I guess when you are doing jobs, for example, like Grubhub, Uber, Lyft, those sorts of things. You're getting paid while you're working, but then when you are off the clock, um, you're not getting paid certainly for your wear and tear on the car, you're not getting paid time off, sick time, you're not getting any benefits, you have no stability, no security, no retirement. Um, I've talked to some Hollywood people on the pod, at least one, an actress, and um, they do have um, the SAG, right, the Screen Actors Guild, the strike's still going on, I think the writers have settled um, but I think some of the issues were, um, you know, people not making a living wage, people not having security, stability. Uh, and again, I saw on your resume a lot of freelance stuff. So what's what's behind the curtain? What's behind the scenes? Uh, the Hollywood business model? Is it like, you know, the gig economy in which I've kind of articulated a little bit, a lot of freelance stuff? You know, you kind of get a job, you do that job, and then, you know, if you can find another one, you move on to the next one. Is that kind of how it goes? Or do you get, like, contracts and, uh, you know, certainly a little bit different than a typical nine to five? So can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think that there's a a lot of different parts of the entertainment industry and, um, you know, if you're coming in a, a, in a below-the-line job, which is not necessarily the producer, the director, the writer, uh, but like any of the other positions, you're you're pretty much always in this position of you're probably starting out as a 1099 contract on some low-budget stuff that they don't even know how to take care of payroll or any of that. Um, and if you're lucky enough to be on payroll, um, you know, you don't have you know, freelance employees aren't eligible for sick days or anything like that because you basically have a contract. Um, you're paid when you work, and uh, you know the people that can navigate that and are smart will will end up going to work at companies that probably are a bit more premium that use services like entertainment partners, where entertainment partners actually picks up that responsibility um, and helps people. So if you work enough hours through entertainment partners, you get sick days through entertainment partners, other things where you're covered um, and you can actually get insurance. But it can be really tricky to navigate. And I think people either find a way to find a job that is payroll, that's salaried like a normal job, or they will end up having to create their own business to really sustain themselves. I think a lot of people have the dream, you know, move out to Hollywood, um, maybe get chosen, selected to be in some feature film, maybe a minor part, and eventually, you know, you become that star, somebody discovers you, Uh, but I'm sure there's way more um, stories about people that follow their dreams and don't make it than there are, you know, um, stars that kind of break through and, and land that, you know, that land that job out there, so just generally, though, maybe to someone that has aspirations, you know, for, uh, moving out to Hollywood and becoming um, part of the film and media and entertainment business. Um, maybe, maybe what's some things that uh, people might not understand and the challenges, um, you know, maybe just to put food on the table. I'm sure there's a lot of people working second and third jobs while they're trying to break through in the industry, just trying to make ends meet. Yeah. I mean, look for an actor, which is, I think the toughest job that you're going to get, um, you have to have a job because 
you know, you're likely not going to get paid for a while as an actor. Um, so you need to be a waiter. You need to have some kind of service job that is flexible that'll allow you to leave and come and go, or you need to do DoorDash or something. Um, and you need to learn how to live below your means a little bit so that your your cost of living is low. You know, it's not something I'd ever recommend to someone who has a family, um, someone who's a little bit older. I think you want to come here in your early 20s, even maybe come here when you're 18, 19 years old, when you're you're totally fine to sleep on a bunk bed or, you know, share an apartment with six guys or girls or whatever. Um, and then you can kind of get a head start. And then you find your breaks and you kind of go from there. But that would be, you know, what I would recommend. And uh, one of my mentors said to me that it's always stuck with me, you know, winning out here is surviving. And, you know, that's something that, you know, a lot of people leave when you've been here. I've been here almost 14 years. A lot of my friends have left. A lot of people I know have left. They've left the industry, uh, especially because of COVID now. You have a 150-day strike where a bunch of people have been out of work. So uh, it's not easy, and you need to be resourceful to survive. Cost of living, though, also, this is maybe one of the most expensive. You're in L.A., right? Yeah, the cost of living is not uh, great. I mean, I think uh, you you can live in the city when you're young, and if you make it big, then you can stay there. But, you know, most most people – even wealthy people live outside of the city because they just want space for their family. They want a nice home. Um, and, you know, that becomes more valuable to them. Like the dream sounds great when you're young and hungry and still kind of raging. But as you get older, you want to, you know, you got to reprioritize a little bit. And you also see, you know, this is like a lottery to get these kinds of situations. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about like, so now you're big time, right? Executive, you got your own company, I hope, and it sounds like things are going well for you. Let's talk about, um, the other side of the coin or whatever. Um, so like if you are, let's say a young and up and coming producer, you know, like yourself or an actor, um, you know, you're just kind of taking jobs as they come to you, trying to maybe stay afloat. Um, you know, so let's say you're an extra or you're getting a minor part. Are you getting paid like just for that day's work? Are you getting like a check that day or at the end of the week or at the end of the month? Um, how does that work? And then the same for, uh, maybe like a producer or something like that, or maybe even a production assistant, that kind of stuff. Um, how does that work out? Like maybe you have something that you're doing, um, to have stable income and, and then you're just trying to whatever work your resume or do you need an agent? So, uh, and yeah. And then how does like the, how does the money's come in? How's the, how's the flow of money? I mean, again, if you're an extra or an actor, these, this isn't regular work. So you're just trying to get your name out there, show up to studios or are you getting an agent and they're giving you calls? I mean, how's all that stuff to, uh, come together? Yeah, so I mean, it really is about, you know, networking and 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 applying to a million jobs, finding a community out here is really important. So whether you're going to go to an improv class, you're going to, you know, meet friends of friends, you're going to go to a school, uh you need to find a kind of like 
a group of people all going through the entertainment industry together to find your way a little bit. I think it's really, really difficult to come out here by yourself and just assume you can just audition for jobs or you can just apply to jobs on, you know, a website and get them. Um, most of, you know, even the production assistant jobs, there are hundreds of applicants at times because a lot of people want to get their foot in the door. Uh, so I think what you need to do is just like have no ego. You got to just, Take what jobs you can, meet everybody, become friends with people, go out, party with them. If they play video games, play video games. If they want to play speed chess, whatever they do, doesn't matter. Uh, just get to know people. You'll eventually find your crowd of people that can help you um, and kind of be a support system for those jobs. But uh, it's a challenge and it's it's really not easy. How about the uh, – so let's go to the other side of the – the coin now, maybe on the big studios, um, the executives, the CEOs, you know, making millions of dollars. These studios are probably bringing in multi-million dollar movies and maybe billion dollar a year revenue. Um, what, what's what's the Screen uh, Actors Guild? What's that SAG strike all about? Can you give me um, maybe some inside information for someone that lives out there and probably knows people that are on the picket lines. Um, I did read an article that the writers, um, they uh, agreed to go back to work, I guess, today or yesterday or something like that, but the, the actors are still holding out. So, uh, yeah, maybe you can talk to about the, um, the strike going on right now in Hollywood. Is it shaking up Hollywood and what exactly these people out there fighting for? Yeah, so, I mean... Really, all these deals are being renewed at a time when things have changed from what they were three years ago when the last deals were done. Um, all these unions were doing deals for theatrical movies, television, film, and uh, the streaming world was kind of not really a thing. At the same time, AI was not really a thing. So right now, you know, inflation has gone crazy while well, wages have stayed stagnant. Uh, people can use AI now to copy your voice or do rewrites on a script. So they're kind of fighting for protections against these things. Um, and while, you know, costs have gone up, studios are looking for a way to save money as well. So they're trying to figure out, can we have less than six writers in the room and things like that? So they're kind of negotiating these protections to make sure that they have a decent working environment and a living wage. Uh, which, you know, as living in Los Angeles is difficult. And that's going to be high. I mean, a living, a living wage in uh, Los Angeles is a lot different than a living wage, uh, you know, maybe in some Midwestern city. Um, maybe we could talk to this, though. So I think we're all, uh, we're all expendable, at least as it, as it relates to, um, you know, some of these executives, CEOs are always looking to cut profit are always looking to cut production costs. If that means wages, that's fine, and maximize profits. That's literally what corporations are designed to do. Um, but, you know, automation, artificial intelligence, it's not just coming for Hollywood and actors and writers. It's coming for everyone. So what's the, what's, what's the automation and the AI? Whose jobs are they taking away out there? How, how are these technologies being used in Hollywood? Is it being used... Uh, and media, movies, writing, production, uh, I, I have no idea. So as, as a complete outsider, maybe you can uh, enlighten me. Automation, artificial intelligence, and how is it changing and shaking up Hollywood? 
Yeah. So, I mean, look, artificial intelligence, I think uh, it isn't exactly where it is taking people's jobs. I think it's going to change everybody's jobs. And I think the people that can adapt with it will excel and the people that don't will struggle and be left behind. Um, the reality is it's the effects of AI in the next two to three years are going to be like the industrial revolution, which really took decades. So you're going to see the world change. I mean, right now there are um, things like chat GPT. That is just an AI that you can have conversations with. You could ask it to do your homework. You could ask it to take the SATs. Uh, Google's about to release its AI. Amazon has a new AI that's really good at like analyzing papers and things like that. Uh, there are also image prompt APIs, something like Midjourney or Adobe Firefly, where you can type in a prompt and you'll actually get an image created. So, uh, you know, we use AI as a company to help create materials to, to go sell something that uh, typically we would just use a designer to build, where now it's kind of a combination between AI and the designer to just take it to another level. Uh, but you could see if, like, you're not comfortable working with AI, that that would put you in a weird situation in a year. So I know this is like kind of what the college athletes are going through, the image and likeness stuff um, is some of the stuff I've read, not much, but uh, I guess maybe studios own the image and likeness to a particular you know film and that sort of thing. So maybe the issue would be in the future, let's say a star ages or even dies, that studio could use the image and likeness with AI and, and you know, put them in a future project. Uh, is that, does that sound about accurate? The, uh, the concept behind it is accurate. Uh, the rights a little tricky, but yeah, I mean, so there is technology. If you're familiar with deep fakes where you can do motion capture and change your face to be yeah, I've Tom seen some of that stuff. That stuff's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Very believable. Really, really good. Yeah. You know, very so that technology. Scary. Yeah. Yeah, it's only going to get better and better. Um, there are, you know, all of that kind of stuff going on. There's now um, AI that can basically take a video and have someone say whatever they want that does that exact same thing, but you don't even need a person to do it anymore. It's just the artificial intelligence doing it. But, you know, what actors specifically were concerned about is that, um, you know, it used to be like if you needed to re-record audio, you do something called ADR, which is after the film's made, that line didn't come through clearly. We need you to come and re-record that line. Now, that is not something that you really need because you can just have AI recreate someone's voice. Uh, so they're protecting their likeness there so that they still get paid to come into work and that a robot doesn't do it for them. Um as far as owning the rights to something, like if they're in a movie, um, you know, the unions have some protections there. Like if, if they're in a movie um, and there's some kind of yeah, like licensing a thing. Like a sequel that's like a coming sequel, out. Yeah, that sort of deal. Yeah, yeah they, they would not be able to use uh, the likeness without having paid that person or the estate of that person to get approval. Uh, that wouldn't be in the contract unless – for some reason it was, I do know that I think Bruce Willis sold his like life rights to AI so that people can recreate him in movies and that there are companies going out and procuring that. Um, 
So that's definitely going to be wow. a thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, right now the way the industry works is, like, if, if you're in the Matrix and there's going to make a new Matrix, they have to get all new people. They can use footage from the old movies to show Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Right? But if they're going to do anything new with Keanu Reeves, he's got to approve it. Right. Okay. So I don't want to get too much into my politics. Uh, I want to make it about you and this interview, and I want to learn stuff from you. But uh, I'm an anti-capitalist big time. That's an understatement. Um, in a maybe a more, uh, I don't know, egalitarian society, uh, maybe a more socialist society, uh, automation and AI would be a great thing because it would free people up for um, more creative endeavors. You know, it would take the mundane, the monotonous, the dangerous jobs, you know, and give them to robots. That'd be an awesome thing to give us more free time to develop our creativities, our passions in life and, you know, give these jobs to robots. But uh, in a capitalist society where corporations, you know, uh, own automation and artificial intelligence, own those technologies and profit from them, even though automation, computers, the internet were all developed for decades in the public sector using taxpayer money, these companies or these technologies were just given away or sold off to corporations. And essentially, we are competing with them and they're putting us out of jobs, which is a bad thing when, you know, safety nets in society are eroding. Um, the welfare state is non-existent. Uh, Social Security, Medicare cuts, um, you know, constantly, uh, you know, um, just just feedback from both parties. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't like either party. I'm an anarchist, so I actually prefer neither political party. Uh, I'm a radical leftist and anarchist, and I actually would, uh, in the long run, like to get rid of, um, you know, a centralized state. But the, the thing about a centralized state, it actually gives us protections from these corporations. We could have, like, working standards and uh, environmental standards, and we could have a minimum wage, and we can have, um, you know, labor laws like OSHA. Um, but yeah, when, when automation and AI um, are owned by these corporations that are profit-seeking institutions, uh, it can be a bad thing because, again, in the long run, if they can get rid of us, they will. You know, all, all workers are expendable. So uh, the minute that they can replace your job or my job with a robot, they'll do it because robots don't need to sleep. Robots don't need to take lunch breaks. Robots don't need a retirement plan or health care. You know what I mean? So, um, anyways, let's go to, let's go to some other stuff. So, um, what about some of the projects you've worked on? Why don't we go inside to, inside like a, a, I guess kind of maybe some of the projects you worked on and Practical Jokers, very popular show, um, maybe, and then with BuzzFeed and all that kind of stuff, maybe give it, give me an idea uh, of some of the projects that you worked on. I'm actually interested in the film and video aspect. I think you... Uh, I talked to you in the pre-call, did a film as well too, you did a feature production, you're not really involved in that kind of stuff anymore, you're more in the media, media marketing side of things? Yeah, so I uh, I did my first film in like 2013 and uh, that ended up being my last film for right now. First and um, last film. First and last film, yeah, it was a low budget TV movie for Nickelodeon. Uh, well, it was, it was an indie film, technically. We sold it to Nickelodeon. Okay. But um, we made it for little or no money. It was a very stressful uh, work. And 
I was just happy to be done with it. And yeah, it just made me understand the the brutal realities of like what working in film is like. Uh, you know, I did try to do some other film projects and I would was a bit more weary of jumping on board of a project because as a producer, you got to get yourself paid. It's not really like you just get a paycheck. Like you're coming on to produce this movie and if you can't sell it, you're not getting a cut of anything. Uh, so it's kind of a weird situation, especially, you know, cause you're not really the, the full media empire, right? Like you don't have this giant studio of salaries and stuff. You've got to live. And so a lot of these indie producers, you know, they're living, you know, movie to movies, like what I like to call it. Right. You know, they're going to go make a movie. Hopefully they sell it and then they have to go to the next one. And it just wasn't a, a lifestyle for me. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got more comfortable in, in the television and the digital kind of streaming world where there's a bit more uh, stability, uh, a little less intensity, um, and uh, just a better uh, life. Yeah, what about the, the, the film project? I don't want to talk about it too much since it's not you know a major element of your career. But I am very interested. I think a lot of people are interested in just making a movie. How did that all come together? Was it your idea? Where did you get the script? Who did you work on it with? Did you get actors to act in it? Did you act in it? Um, you know, how did that all come together? And you know, I guess it sounds like a rather draining experience. Um, but I guess it's nice to uh, you know have it under your belt and nice to be something that you've done. You know, as maybe as everyone I'm sure in America has grown up watching movies. You know, you actually made one of these things. So. Maybe talk about how that all came together, where the ideas came yeah. from, where the script came from, and who'd you work with on it? Yeah, so the movie is called Terry the Tomboy, um, and it is about a girl named Terry who's a tomboy, and she falls in love with a cute guy at school, but ultimately settles for the best friend instead. Uh, it was inspired by a bunch of YouTube sketches that uh, were made at Awesomeness TV, if you're not familiar with Awesomeness TV, Brian Robbins was the CEO. He created Smallville and directed The Nutty Professor and a bunch of movies. He also created all that. Um, oh, so I, that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So I was working there for him. Uh, this was the first movie they kind of wanted to get rolling out the door. Uh, I was happy to just produce any kind of movie. Uh, so I was excited to take on the challenge. And, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of money to make it. Uh, it was an ambitious project. We had to, you know, basically, you know, cast this thing. We did have, like, the help from an agency called UTA to help with casting. We had casting directors. Uh, there was a writer-director on the project. So I was solely what's called the line producer. So you're really protecting the budget, executing the project, and delivering it. Is really what you're responsible for. Like you're basically responsible to the bank is yeah. how I'd explain it. Um, so, you know, you've got a lot of pressure from above to bring it in on budget, get everything done properly. And then you are the one that has to say, no, you're basically the ultimate middle manager. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, one of the big challenges is we had to create a, a, a fair basically there was like a fair scene that we filmed we had to like find a place to create that with you know 100 extras and 
we had like a whole wow. set piece on a yeah. on a Ferris wheel and everything, and then uh, there was you know they weren't happy with the ending, so we had to go and reshoot. I had to recreate the exact same thing oh, like six man. months later. Uh, so so, so like, the director's coming to you and saying, "This is my idea, and you're the guy that's got to make it happen." Is that am I kind of getting that right, or? Uh, I think this was more of like a studio system movie where like Awesomest TV was making this sh- thing yeah. and said, we want to make a movie out of it. Yeah. Hey, director, here's money to go write a script. Yeah. Uh, the writer director wrote the script. Then they said that we're going to make it. This is how much money we have. Mm-hmm. And they said, Harris, take it from here. <laughs> here's the money go. Uh, and so then, you know, I had, I don't know, six months to, figure it out. We had to cast it. We had to, you know, continually do rewrites, then actually make the thing, which really do over like 13 to 15 days. Yeah. And then you edit the movie for, you know, six to eight weeks. Then, uh, but you know, we had to go through what's called reshoots where sometimes you, the first time you don't get everything right. You know, you read it in a story, it sounds great. And then when you actually see it on film, it wasn't right. So uh, they actually made a change in the director and they uh, made some changes to the script. And that's what we reshot a couple months later. And uh, so, you know, you're kind of at the forefront of all those conversations. We're going to make a change here. We're going to change this person there. And so it can be intense. And, um, you know, I, I learned a lot. I'm really thankful for the opportunity and getting to work with everyone, but it definitely kind of set the tone for me and was like, I was looking for something else after yeah. that. So I kind of want to go to, um, you said some things here about um, film, media, and the effect on society, on culture. Um, I want to talk a little bit about art, uh, maybe your background too, uh, in education, uh, some of the things that you studied, um, and then that Masters of Fine Arts program, I think that was production, right? Um, so can you talk to me a little bit about that? What are uh, the effects of film and media on society, on culture, um, you know, and what about like art, you know, and, and certainly in art, right? Um, can you talk about, uh, your education and maybe your thoughts in general about what contributions and what benefits that media, TV, video, um, all that kind of stuff have on society? Yeah. I mean, look, uh, media, you know, and film and television create the collective consciousness of societies. So, uh, based on what we watch and see in mainstream media or on social that, that creates the collective con- consciousness, sorry, that creates the collective consciousness that exists. So that's how a viral social challenge happens, right? Or a viral dance or uh, the obsession with a movie that sweeps the nation like Harry Potter or super bad or bridesmaids anything like that so um and those movies that content affects people you know i mean films were used in nazi germany as propaganda so uh there's a lot of different ways you can use film and the tools like this um and you know we've created a business out of it that's what the united states decided to do what are the elements that make a hit film a hit movie is there some sort of formula um these these film uh, production studios and stuff spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a movie sometimes and it flops, you know, I always found that very interesting. And then sometimes these cult classics, you know, these low budget films 
come out of nowhere and they're huge hits. Um, yeah, what do you think? Is, is there some sort of element? Is there some sort of equation or formula that makes a hit? Do you talk about this kind of stuff in these film and video classes? Yeah, I mean, we certainly talk about a lot of things like that. I think that there are a lot of things you can do to help make a hit film. But ultimately, a good movie is in the execution. And um, it's not just the, you know, the writing or the directing. It's it's everything together and uh, creating a story that keeps the audience guessing, that is visually enticing. All those elements come together to make a hit. And if you were to look at some of the hits this summer, like Barbie, Oppenheimer, uh, you know, I think they all have something in common, which is it's great storytelling. It keeps you guessing. Uh, it's unpredictable. Even though you know what's going to happen in both of those movies pretty much when you walk in the door, uh, the little things along the way is the journey, and that's unpredictable and fun. And that's what makes a hit movie. Uh, everything else is icing on top. I thought the score was really good in Oppenheimer. I thought I thought it was really entertaining. My one issue with some of the more recent films is there seems like to be. I think Scorsese was making one close to four hours long or something like that. Why, why does you know even go into like um, action movies and superhero movies, Transformer movies, all that kind of nonsense? Uh, now we're getting like two and a half hour. Uh, action movies, superhero movies. So what's the push of all these films have to have this character development and they have to be two, three hours long. Um, it, it didn't seem like movies were like this. I remember it being, uh, you know, back in my day, but, you know, going to a movie, and, you know, it was an hour and 15 minutes. It was fun. It was cool. And then you move on with your lives. But it seems like everyone nowadays, these directors and, and, and whatnot, are trying to make these three-hour epics. Have you noticed that trend? Yeah, I think... Um... I think there's a, a few different factors in there. Uh, you know, one being just, you know, this is a global economy. You don't make a movie just for the United States anymore if you're making a studio film. So uh, I know that in places like China, other markets, longer movies perform better. So I think there is a push when you're making a big studio film to try and keep it a little bit longer. That's not necessarily the case with a comedy like Barbie or some of these other movies. Uh, the other part of that is uh, people are, you know, they got you there. They want to, they want to entertain you and they're, and they're trying to make it worth your while. I think because the price of a movie ticket is a lot more than it was when we were kids. So I think they feel like some people feel like, well, it's gotta be two hours and 20 minutes because of this, that and the other thing, right? Like uh, you spent $26 just for the ticket and $30 for the popcorn. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's a big factor. And then I think, uh, you know, they want to try to think if there's another good explanation here for you. Um, I, I don't know. Other than that, I think those are the main two things I would say China and, uh, the tickets are more expensive. How uh, how has streaming, you alluded to it earlier, how has streaming um, kind of turned Hollywood on its side? Um, a lot of times now, big films, they just go straight to, to streaming sometimes. Uh, the rights just go right there. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the new streaming 
business model, what Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, YouTube Premium, subscription-based um, streaming uh, streaming services, and then like, what's the business model? I guess you can get kind of like pay more for the premium and get like ad-free stuff versus uh, you can watch. I think there's um, Tubi. I think that's like a free film streaming service where it's all free, uh, but they have um, you know ad revenue. So how has that kind of upset the Hollywood business model? Some of these studios or some of these streaming services, right? They're starting to even make their own content like Netflix before they were just kind of like buying the rights to movies to put them on their platform. And now they have their own studio. Uh, I think, you know, Amazon does too, obviously one of the wealthiest or maybe the wealthiest country uh, company, excuse me, corporation in the world. Um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of different, um, I guess, companies, corporations, are getting into the you know content business, the production business, the TV and, and movie business. Um, so how has things changed over the last, what, five years, eight years? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's changed drastically, right? I mean, there was a time when uh, Netflix went to get, which was trying to sell itself to Blockbuster, and Blockbuster laughed them out the building, and now, you know, Blockbuster's gone, and Netflix is the king of the jungle. Um, and, you know, they, they've, I think Netflix has kind of built the model that everybody's going to follow, which is you could pay a little bit of money and you get ads. You could pay a little more money and you don't get ads. Or you could pay even a little bit more money and you get 4K quality and unlimited accounts, right? Yeah. Uh, so everybody's going to go to that model or they're going to sell their business. I think like, you know, the, the new players, the Amazons, the Apples, they are set up for success because they don't rely on the media business. The media business is a part of their business. But if you look at the traditional players like Disney and, and Universal, uh, they are going to struggle right now because they have to compete with this environment and they don't, They've always relied on their theme parks and things like that to bring in revenue, and that's struggling now too. So it's been a, a big change, and it's also a lot of what these strikes are about is you know, actors and writers and directors usually get paid in residuals along with a producer on a project. So if you have a hit movie, everybody makes out big. But with streaming, that's really different because – we don't know any of that information. We don't know if it was streamed a lot or not. It's not publicly available. If you want to check on a movie, you just go to boxofficemojo.com and you'll see how much money it made this weekend. So uh, it's definitely been a challenge. And that's kind of some of the wins that the WGA came out with is, you know, some bonuses based on a certain amount of streams that uh, things get. Uh, and that's going to be reflected in the SAG agreement as well. There was a time during COVID where I thought movie theaters were going were going to go away completely. I thought they were gone and they were never going to come back. I know the business was very, very bad during the heart of the pandemic, but it seems like it's back on the rise again. I guess people, um, it's very popular in, in American culture, in Western culture, to go to the theater. Um, but yeah, I thought with the convenience of streaming and watching new films premiered on these streaming services... Um, yeah, I thought the, the movie theater was going to go the way of uh, a blockbuster and, and kind of be a relic of the past. But again, it seems to have bounced back. I actually went to the movies in the last couple of years. I haven't been there since COVID, but just, you know, kind of started going again. What do you think about the future of um, movie theaters? Is this 
Is this always going to be around? Do you think it's always going to be popular? And then maybe we could also go to just cable television. I actually am a dinosaur. I still have cable because I'm not really too big on streaming. I don't watch too much TV as it is, but I do like to have, you know, kind of my cable and my my news and my up-to-date TV, I guess. I don't know why. I'm not too much of a streamer. But, yeah, what do you think about those two, um, you know, kind of maybe dinosaurs that are still holding on? Uh the, the cable television and the cord, and a lot of the cord cutters, the millennials and Gen Z. And then what do you think about the movie theater as just an institution? So, yeah, I think cable's got maybe 15 years to 20 years at best before it's gone completely. You think it's going to go uh, the way of newspapers and just be completely gone and that's it? Yeah, yeah, I think it's kind of useless at this point. Um, if you have Hulu TV... I know you don't, but if, you know, people listening have Hulu TV or YouTube TV, uh, I have YouTube TV. It's a fraction of the price. You get basically everything that you would want in cable for cheaper, and you get a bunch of things on demand, and it's smarter. Uh, And now it has Sunday NFL ticket. So uh, for me, I I would never go back. Um, You know, I think that they're holding on to dear life, to whatever rights they have, but... The you know the only thing that's really left is live sports at this yeah. point, yeah. Um, and you know Amazon's gobbled that up, YouTube gobbled up Sunday Ticket. It's only a matter of time before all those deals move to the digital world, and then all that stuff dies. So, yeah, I think it's it's just a matter of time. Uh, and then movies, I don't think they're really going to go away. Uh, maybe. Maybe like fifty to a hundred years from now, maybe it would be a thing. I think people generally like it as an activity to do with other people. I think there's something about seeing a movie, a packed movie theater with a bunch of people, and having your popcorn and your soda or your wine or whatever it is, and and walking out with that collective experience that that we love. And I just think that that magic is going to be there forever. It's just that the types of movies that are in those theaters are going to be the ones that justify the cost to make those movies. Uh, one of the things I'd actually worked in a theater in high school. Um, I always found this fascinating because I had no idea like the most popular day of the year to go to, to go see a movie is Christmas day. I mean, it was packed. It was nuts that in uh, new year's day. So like these holidays, where I figured people would be at home spending time with their families. No, this is like one of the biggest movie days of the year. I remember like my bosses and stuff there, like, oh, we, everyone's got to come in Christmas Day, you know, we're going to have a packed house. I'm like, really? But yeah, it was a packed house. It was insane. So yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, it's just a popular family activity. Maybe it maybe will never go away. I do like uh, drive-ins. Have you ever been to a drive-in? I think that's a fun uh, summer activity. They're pretty much dying. They're a relic. There is actually one down here in South Texas where I am, which I might go check it out. But have you ever done that experience, uh, the drive-in? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I love that kind of stuff. Uh, we don't have a drive-in nostalgic. like most us. Yeah, a lot of nostalgic. I uh, back to my childhood. We have a, a very cool thing similar to that here called Senespia that is um, a, like, outdoor movie screening in a cemetery Ooh. at the Hollywood Memorial Cemetery, and they screen all sorts of classic movies. So, like, I just went a couple weeks ago and saw Poltergeist there. Uh, really, really cool. They always do, like, Gle- Grease and Goodfellas and, like, 
Yeah, you know all all the classics. I think they they're about to do Scarface, um, but it's like a total business out here. I mean, there's a bunch of food trucks and a bar, and um, you know it's it's a very cool but creepy vibe in like a giant Hollywood cemetery. So I want to talk a little bit about so. These are two things I wrote down when I was talking with the last person on Hollywood, but there's vertical integration, which is like, you know, you you might have a studio that makes the content that maybe owns the movie theaters, owns the streaming services, those sorts of things. Those big companies like Disney, they diversified uh, streams of income, you know, and then you have like horizontal integration where, you know, a handful of studios, um, dominate you know an old an oligopoly if you will um hollywood it sounds like there's a lot of both of those two economic um you know i guess forms of power concentrated power and wealth uh i guess which makes it difficult for maybe smaller up-and-coming companies a company like maybe that you're i guess you're not necessarily like a studio or anything like that you're not putting out like tv shows um or um uh you know TV shows or movies, right? You're doing like more ad ad things, right? Advertisements and, and that sort of thing. And maybe we can talk about your company and I'd love to. Um, but what about being, you know, a small up and coming niche, you know, kind of, kind of company uh, in, in Hollywood that seems to be, you know, dominated by these ginormous studios. Um, you know, you know, the names better than I do, but like Disney for sure, right? Disney and what, uh, Universal, Warner Brothers, I mean, like just a handful of studios that dominate the majority of the content. But I guess, um, you know, Netflix and, you know, these other big companies, Apple, got into it. But these are also uh, enormous conglomerates, billion dollars, maybe even as it relates to Apple and Amazon, trillion dollar, you know, companies, or at least eventually will be. Um, what about like the concentrated, I guess, power of these mega conglomerates, these mega corporations and the difficulty uh, of maybe putting out like independent media and film and TV. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's tough to be uh, like, I look at the world as buyers and sellers, right? Uh, there are buyers that is Apple, Amazon, Netflix, uh, the main kind of people, Disney, NBC, Universal, Warner brothers, discovery. Uh, and then there is kind of everybody else, you know, there are independent cable channels there are like you know smaller streamers like roku and freebie and all that stuff um but this is very similar to what happened in the golden age of television when first started there was like 44 networks and then it kind of got consolidated to four so i think what you're seeing is like the fight of these juggernauts and who is going to do what and what is going to live uh on in the next 10 or 20 years. I mean, I don't think you're going to have all these streaming services available down the road, but like even right now, if you have a Samsung TV or a, uh, an LG TV, they have their own cable programming. Right? They have the Samsung TV plus with 500 channels or whatever. Um, so it, it's a challenge to kind of navigate that as a seller. I mean, as a, as a seller, because I got to sell it a show, I have to find out who to sell it to, what they're looking for. Um, and, you know, they have their big friends that they can just say, hey, we want to make this. How about we make that? You know, and, and so it's hard to stand out um, and you have to really find ways to do that. So talk to me about your background. Let's let's end with, you know, the stuff that you're doing with your current company, um, Wild Cat. 
uh, catter, right? Is that guy got that right? Wild yeah, catter. Wild catter. Yeah. 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 So look, wild catter uh, are you know basically people that kind of moved out to the West Coast uh, in the gold rush to search for oil, right? And so I think that's kind of our ethos of our business is you know we're kind of out here hunting for gold, uh, and we're willing to blow shit up to get there. So, uh, you know, we have a television division that focuses on, uh, you know, kind of premium documentaries, like sports documentaries, things like that. Uh, we have a couple projects in the work there. Uh, we also have a digital side of the business that works with, uh, you know, big companies like YouTube and Twitch and Amazon and uh, Apple. We make content for all of them. Some of it is content marketing. Some of it is original content. Um, and we also do production services for other people if they just need to execute something and they want it done properly. Um, yeah. How, how about, so what, what is your kind of focus? What is your, uh, I guess, main, um, you know, skill set or production? What do you like to work on out there? Obviously, um, you know, movies weren't for you. So what, what have you kind of developed as your niche or your, uh, you know, I guess your primary outlet for creativity and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, my personal skill set, I, I bring a lot of different things to the table, but my focus of the company is in uh, production and operations. So I'm very involved in how we actually execute something, how we execute it to a certain dollar number and all the technical details on how we get there. Um, I also have become fascinated with how to build and operate startup and small businesses. So a lot of my work is in how do we set this company up to succeed? Uh, so that's kind of what I do. Uh, I would say a lot of my focus has been building out the live part of our business. We are building a live first digital network. That's all focused on creating live content on Twitch and YouTube. Uh, and we do it in the quality of, broadcast television for a fraction of the price. So what kind of, what kind of programs are we talking about here? Uh, so the most recent one that we are doing right now, and we have our, our last episode of this year, uh, this coming Sunday is for DraftKings and it's a partnership with Amazon and DraftKings. It's a sports betting show about betting on all the games on Sunday morning during the NFL. So it's basically got three people on it. Two of them are contestants. One of them is the host. They're all placing bets. And it's kind of teaching you about betting and how to bet, but also a watch along for the games to kind of learn, learn about betting and play this game with them. Because what's great is you can actually, in the chat, play along. I want to go a little bit about this stuff here. Um, you're you're in, in into like the marketing advertisement side of the business too. Is that that's part of what your company does? Yeah, we do do content marketing, branded content, and we do do some like advertising as well. All right, so I want to talk about like big data surveillance technology. Um, you know, these companies like spying on us. Like, I don't know. Maybe you're more of an insider. How, are they are they listening? Are they listening to our conversations? Are they taking video? How is how is my phone able to like I can think something or say something in a conversation and all of a sudden it comes up on my phone as some ad for you know maybe I was talking about a golf club and all of a sudden oh just randomly here's a new Callaway driver why don't you check this uh, so I, are you are you familiar like how do these 
how do they know what I'm thinking and saying? Uh, how's, how's this big data stuff, surveillance technology, Silicon Valley, how's it all work together to somehow give me uh, the ads on my phone that I'm thinking before I even know I want them? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's there's way too much information for anyone to be sitting and sifting through it all. So it's not like there are people sitting and reading this, but uh, you know, your phone, all the apps on it, everything that you're doing is recording everything you do, and they're then serving you custom ads. So it's making decisions based on you liking photos on Instagram about golf to serve you a golf thing right and uh your it will look at your browsing data and see oh you looked this up at some point or you searched golf clubs what do you think of this golf club yeah right uh it's customly it's it's making custom tailored ads which is if you saw the movie minority report it's exactly that right it's literally scanning you and saying id number five seven six two eight loves you know these golf clubs. So let's sell them. What do you, what do you think about that minority report and uh, the theme behind that movie, I guess, arresting someone before they even committed a crime. What do you think about uh, big data, big brother surveillance technology, lack of privacy in this changing digital world where we're all online, including this interview. Um, Does it give you pause? Uh, You know, does it, are you concerned about our lack of privacy, do you see it continuing to kind of erode? Uh, it seems like, um, you know, people have less and less privacy while governments and corporations, you know, uh, there's transparency. It seems like for people, they can always look into our business. Um, I saw some stuff about like Facebook sharing information, Twitter sharing information with governments, you know, getting uh, face recognition, facial recognition technology for crimes and all that kind of stuff, minority report. Uh, this is maybe more in the line of the things I talk about. So someone from you that works into works in digital and media and Hollywood and works with these technologies all the time, I'm not as tech savvy, certainly it doesn't sound like as you are. Uh, I'm not too much on social media. I don't watch as much you know TV or as media as probably the average person does. Um, but for me, it, it definitely, you know, that's one of the reasons I chose to be kind of anonymous on this podcast. Um, you know, there's some things that, you know, maybe my views on politics or, um, you know, uh, current events and things like that, that maybe I don't want out there. What do you think about, again, surveillance technology, big brother, uh, lack of privacy, transparency in our lives? Um, it's a give you pause. Does it make you concerned? Do you not think about it much during your day to day action? You know, I. I go back and forth if I'm going to be honest. I think that um, when you look at a movie like Minority Report or you look at, you know, that side of things, it can be really scary that all that data is out there for everybody. Um, At the same time, you look at some of the exposures that have happened because of all this being out there. And I think, you know, creating the, you know, the Me Too movement would have never happened. This kind of like, cancel culture for better or worse ultimately i think for better uh is getting rid of some of these people that i think were privately doing some really nasty things so i think in some ways it's been nice because i think it's made people more accountable because they they have to be authentically 
good or if they're not, it's somewhat, someone's going to get it on tape somewhere. Or some data is going to come out about it. So uh, I would say I like that. I don't like that all my data is, you know, somewhere in a file um, and shared back and forth between all these companies. And, you know, I think some companies are a little bit better about making you aware of that, but sometimes, you know, they send you a 25 page contract that you have to scroll through and click accept and nobody reads the whole thing. Right. I think there was a really good uh, South Park episode where like, uh, you know, I think Kyle like scrolled to the bottom and hit accept and they like turned him into like the caterpillar from the horror movie where it's like three humans stitched together. And it's like, yeah. you didn't read the whole thing. Like, human centipede. Yeah. Human yeah. Centipede, yeah. 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 The human centipede. So, uh, it's definitely a pros and cons to it for sure. I actually don't like cancel culture. I'm a radical leftist. I don't like cancel culture. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing that someone for what they said 10 or 12 years ago on social media comes back and all of a sudden, you know, they lose everything. Well, certainly like racist views, sexist, sexist views, misogynistic views like I, I do not support. Right. But I also don't think it's a great thing, you know, that we're dicking up. 10, 20 years now, or I mean, essentially most of our lives that we're all on the internet. You know, that's one of the reasons I kind of went blackout on most of my social media accounts. I don't think it provides me with much value. Um, and yeah, it can be very negative. You know, you, people can go back, uh, you know, with some of your things that you said in high school and college, you know, maybe when you're brain wasn't developed and then also as it relates to like cancel culture i believe in free speech and i believe if you truly believe in free speech you believe your enemy is entitled to those same free speech uh opportunity to that same you know right to express themselves so i think that we shouldn't be canceling people certainly certainly before they even say anything um i think the best way to get to to, to kind of like improve the collective consciousness and to uh improve just um, I guess, you know, the way I think there's like a lot of tribalism, you know, and us versus them mentality. Uh, I think in politics, it's a lot of divide and uh, conquer, you know, I think that people on the right and the left have a lot more in common than they do have differences. I think that part of what um, the ruling class, the establishment tries to uh, to do is, you know, kind of divide us and try to get us focused more so on the culture war about maybe trans rights or sexual identity or or whatever, when really um, I think the, the class war, at least in, in working class politics, is more what I'm interested in. So, yeah, I, I don't care about, like, I'm all for, um, you know, I'm all for, like, being progressive and socially open to uh, whatever, you know, someone's causes, what I'm more interested in, at least when, in the politics is, you know, the homelessness problem. You know, if you see like videos out in, uh, California and any big city, I was in Baltimore. I mean, there's homeless camps all over the place. Minimum wage hasn't, uh, increased in a decade or so. 7.25 an hour. You couldn't live off of 7.25 an hour in Hollywood. Uh, the lack of an eroding, uh, safety net society, the welfare state, the fact that there's $2 trillion in um, student loan debt. So, yeah, as it relates to cancel culture, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not in favor of it. I think that if people want to have, you know, some ridiculous ideology, I'm all for them having that ability to express it. Um, but, like, in terms of, like, cancel culture and that sort of thing, 
book banning. Those are typically techniques of the right. You know, I, I oppose cancel culture. I've, I, I'm in favor of free speech, and I'm in favor of letting people express themselves. And if you, again, if you truly believe in free speech, you believe your enemy is entitled to those same rights to free speech, not just people that you agree with. Uh, but what do you think about all of that cancel culture, the culture war, and the class war? Is any of those issues uh, interest you, or is any of those issues hit a hot button for you? Well, yeah. I mean, look. I think the the cancel culture is look. It went it went from zero to a hundred real quick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like you know, it started out as a as a thing that was like writing a lot of wrongs. Then it started to become a thing of like, really, it he got canceled for that, or she got canceled for this. Uh, you know, I think that there are uh, when there are criminal activities happening, someone deserves to be canceled. Yeah, I think uh, when someone's breaking the law or someone's putting someone else's life in danger, yeah, those those are things that I think we need to address. But as it relates to speech, if someone wants to make some ridiculous comment, the best way, um, like for example, like a Holocaust denier, you know, something like that, uh, the best way we could, um, you know, combat that was certainly with you know knowledge of the Holocaust. Like, listen, this happened. There's so much documentation. How could you even? Um, you know, have that opinion, right? Uh, but the second way would be just like to pay it no mind. I mean, how many people could honestly in this day and age believe that kind of stuff? So I think there's a, a number of approaches. Um, but I still, I guess, will give someone the right to deny it. I mean, if you or if you want that free speech, like I don't think it should be criminalized. Like I don't think you should go to jail for saying I don't believe in the Holocaust. Uh, but what I would say is that person is a moron. That person is an idiot, and certainly it happened, and there's plenty of documentation. There is no possible way that, you know, uh, there's some sort of conspiracy, right? So, but, yeah, I mean, these, these getting the kind of um, sensitive topics for people. But, you know, again, the way I see it, I'm a radical leftist. I believe that cancel culture, book banning, book burning, those are all tactics of the right. And I think we're better than that on the left. So I think that we should kind of get over um, the author- I don't think we want to um, combat authoritarianism with more authoritarianism, you know, and I think sometimes like when people um, are trying to speak, you know, it's in, 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 in public, you know, people get booed and physically, you know, stopped. And again, and that's from the left, you know, from the left and someone, you know, at least from, from my perspective, I think that that is an authoritarian tactic, and I think that's more of a right-wing tactic. And like I said, if, if I, I think that people that I don't agree with should have the ability, if you truly believe in free speech, to express uh, themselves. But anyways, what else do we want to talk about? What, what kind of projects you got going on right now? you have anything in the works? you have anything else that you're working on? Do you have anything you're interested in that's coming down the pipe? And what, maybe what's the future for your company? Yeah, look, we got a we got a lot of stuff in the pipeline that we're we're going out to market with right now, um, and projects we're being considered for. So, um, you know, it's looking like next year is going to be a really good year for us. I think this year has been a challenge. I think the strikes really affected everyone in the entertainment industry because people just didn't want to spend money. Uh, these big companies wanted to hold on to their money, and so uh, everyone felt that. And so I think I'm excited for 2024 and to see what that brings. Uh, you know, we uh, just are finishing construction on a new office building in the arts district that we are having custom built out and uh, really excited to kind of get that thing up and running. That'll be up December 1st. What do you think? Uh, 
about the, the strikes going on, do you think that they're, I guess, again, we talked a little bit about it. Do you think they're coming to uh, a close? And do you think, um, you know, that's going to be resolved? And do you think, you know, people are going to get maybe more security, more stability, uh, closer to a living wage? Um, or do you think, uh, you know, there's going to be maybe another issue bubbling in the next year or two? Like, uh, so get some long-term resolution with these strikes yeah, or maybe I just a that, short-term band-aid. Yeah. I think there's going to be at least three years of things being good for a little while. I think that what we saw a little bit of was a, a bit of the AI effect on yeah. these unions. And I think you're going to see that across a lot of other industries in the next couple of years of like AI being introduced into the workforce. How is it used? And um, you know, how it's affecting workers. I think you're seeing a lot of unions trying to figure this out right now. So I do think it's like the start of that. Um, I do think that the deal that they got was pretty good. I think that the SAG will get a similar deal. And then the below the line crew, which is uh, called IATSE, uh, they're up to renew their deal. And I think that they'll end up renewing that deal and not going on strike because uh, they just, people got to get back to work. I mean, it's been 155 days. Yeah, yeah. The studio heads and the executives can be out of work that long, but normal working class people cannot afford uh, to go that long without a paycheck. Uh, we got like a minute to go. You have anything else to to plug? Where can people find you if they are interested in what you had to say today or uh, in your company generally? You got a website. I checked it out earlier today. Uh, that's the that's the wild catter, right? Yeah, wildcatterla.com. That's our website. You can see a bunch of our work and projects. You can get in touch with us. Um, we definitely are doing a lot of cool stuff on there. Uh, we'll be updating that website. There's a phone number there if you want to talk to us about projects or being an intern or anything like that. Uh, we got some merch up there as well. And then uh, I would say if you're on Twitch, uh, my handle is Smokey DeVito. Uh, I'll be on there doing all sorts of streams from sports to uh, gaming to gambling. All right, my friend. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Have a good night. All right. You too. See you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I want to thank my special guest, Harris Sherman, media executive and producer for a good discussion on Hollywood Inc. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.